Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman number 30, August. Cover date, September 1991. Writer Neil Gaiman, Brian Talbot, penciler, Stan Watch as inker, Daniel Vazo as colorist, Todd Klein as letterer, Elisa Quitney as assistant editor, and Karen Berger as editor, or as she is listed in some versions of the issue, Mother of Mother to the World. <laughs> I think that was certainly true in the 1990s, or at least it felt true, felt true for us for sure. This issue is going to take us to the Roman Empire, which I love and I'm very excited about. Uh, last time, Brent, I made a pretty big deal of the fact that just coincidentally, I had read that same Thomas Paine passage in The Sandman and then also The Magic Treehouse that week. And I have to report, well, to you and, and maybe to a listener or two who might be interested, but I have to report that the same thing has happened again. While you and I have been here reading about the first Roman emperor, Augustus, Finch and I have been reading about Jack and Annie visiting the last of the five good Roman emperors. That's Marcus Aurelius. So uh, I don't know what's going on here, but I hope it stops soon. In fact, I know it will since I know what is going to happen next issue. And I know that we are not, Jack and Annie are not going to uh, visit that part uh, of, of history uh, soon. But it has been really, really weird feeling. Yeah, it's strange sometimes when uh, things link together. Um, I think particularly when there's ideas that you're just like, wait, have I seen this recently? Oh, maybe it was in a dream. And then you're trying to figure out, is this because of the Gates of Ivory or the Gates of Horn? Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's get into it. So I said last time that I remembered this issue, August, as being one of my favorite issues. That is also something that I said about Calliope before we got there. And the reason for that in both cases is that each of these issues is involved in classics in some way. Uh, classics being the study of the ancient Mediterranean, specifically Greek and Roman civilization. This is something that I have loved my entire life. It's also something I have done professionally. But something else these issues have in common is that they require a pretty serious content advisory. Like Calliope, August deals with sexual assault, and in this case, it is the sexual assault of a minor. So there is child sexual abuse in this story. It is not something that we plan to dwell on. Certainly, we don't intend to discuss it in graphic detail here, though this is a graphic medium. But we want you to know going in that those are, are here, and you can decide for yourself if you're up for that or not. And in fact, the issue opens with this, though we don't yet know that that's what these panels are about. But we see a 16-year-old boy lying awake in the dark, and the narrator tells us that this 16-year-old boy is listening for the sound of approaching footsteps, and he's dreading that sound. And he also is trying awfully hard not to cry. And we don't know it yet, but this is Augustus. This is the first emperor of Rome. That's a, a title uh, that we'll actually return to a bit later. But the story we are going to get is not actually from an omniscient narrator. It is, in fact, told to us by a contemporary to the events, it's a participant in the events. His name is Lycius, and he has dwarfism. Uh, Gaiman uses the word dwarf in the text. And he is a professional actor. The story we get is told by him, and in fact, it's written down by him. It's not just narrated by him or told by him. He's writing it down, uh, though only some of it will really be 
narrated by him because most of this is going to come as a kind of third person flashback. But I just want to say here that I am a sucker for this gimmick, this gimmick of finding some, you know, hitherto unknown text. And it is actually the same device that Gaiman used last time in Thermidor, where we know of that story because Gaiman has access to Johanna Constantine's journal. But I didn't make a big deal of that last time because it actually came late in the issue as a kind of revelation. But I think that getting this same device two issues in a row really makes that stand out. I don't remember, Brent, if we get that gimmick in the next issue. I hope we do. I hope that's one of the through lines here, right? Right, One of the through lines here for this Distant Mirrors story collection. Yeah, I don't remember if we get it in the next issue or not. But uh, I mean, part of the fun thing, one of the fun things of doing something like this is you get the advantage of a character, a specific person in this case, thinking about an event in their own life and then also what things later rippled out. But we don't have an all-knowing narrator who is telling us, no, no, here are the dots to connect. So I think that there are a number of areas that are open to interpretation. A lot of people talk about this in terms of an unreliable narrator. I don't know that the narrator is necessarily even unreliable so much as just narrators are limited. The other fun bit of trope that Neil Gaiman likes to go to is he is a fan of writers and he is a fan of writers in the broadest sense of the word writing in terms of here we have someone who is an actor. So we have his actual writing, but by profession, he's an actor, but similar to writers, particularly in the context of how we envision the realm of Morpheus of, of the dream domain is that these are people who are creating things and stories and fictions, which may be, you know, laced with truth, but they are fictions. Um, and so, you know, here Lysias is another kind of creator in that way, just as, you know, if we had instead focused on someone who, you know, made marble statues, we could have done that right for Rome. And that would have similarly been an artist in a different way. And someone who is writing just not with a, you know, not with the Latin script maybe, but, uh, still, um, so I think that it's, it, it's, it's a trope that he likes going back to in terms of the, the creator, the writer, the person telling the fictions and in there, then there's also underlying truths which can come out and you, you know, you, you specifically use fiction to talk about what is going on. Right. So it's, it's all about the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell others. Yeah. He also likes performers, uh, the performing arts as well. This is something that we had in uh, a study in Emerald, which we recorded uh, last weekend as well. And we'll see again, right? There's lots of Neil Gaiman material about performers. And here we're getting that combined, right? Where it's an actor who is also a, a writer. And uh, I don't know, that's like uh, it's like dual class or something in, in D&D, right? If you can do both of those things. Well, all right, let's get back to the, the first century AD here. And I suppose that I should give just a little precis on Augustus and uh, the world that we see here before we get too much further. Augustus was born in 63 BC. He died in 14 AD, and he created what we now today call the Roman Empire and is generally regarded as the first Roman emperor. That's something that started around 27 BC. What allowed Augustus to create this position for himself is that the Roman Republic had fallen into really a a century-long period of political factionalism, civil wars, rebellions, and other bits of political and social chaos, also some cultural chaos as well. 
Julius Caesar had come out on top of this. This is a name people recognize, right? Julius Caesar. He came out on top of this and he began working to create a new political stasis. But then, of course, he was assassinated and the Roman world was plunged into civil war again. Augustus was one of several leaders of the pro-Caesar forces during this civil war, and uh, they won. And eventually, Augustus became the only leader of the pro-Caesar forces, though that's a process that happened only gradually. And so he did, by 27 BC, become really the sole ruler of the Roman world. How he did this, how he pulled this off, this is a huge topic. It's one that really fascinates me, fascinated me as a student. It's one I teach now as as often as I can as a professor, but uh, uh, not going to go into that here. So, all right, now we have set the table, so to speak. We can actually go get the meal, what we're here for. Now, we don't get a date, but Augustus is old in this story. Uh, Lycius is young, we should say. And we know that he's actually writing this all down when he himself is older. It's about 50 years after the events. And what's happening is that Lycius is helping Augustus disguise himself. And he's helping because, right, he's an actor and makeup and costumes are things that actors know about. Lycius is just generally more worldly, or maybe not worldly, but streetwise, maybe is the phrase to use here, than Augustus is. Because the deal is that Augustus wants to walk around Rome for a day, and he wants to do it in disguise, though he's cagey about why, at least right now. Eventually, we'll get that backstory. And the disguise is that of a beggar. So he and Lycius, they settle down on the steps of a temple that's near a market. They put out a bowl for coins. And then the bulk of the issue at this point is really just the two of them talking. It's really awesome. And they're having really two or three different conversations at once, which of course would be just absolutely dizzying to cover page by page. So we're not going to do that. We're going to break this down into some categories here. One of these conversations is about why it is that Augustus is hiding in a marketplace instead of emperoring today. And of course, that's the story, really, right? But another conversation is about his relationship with Julius Caesar, his uncle, and it's going to turn out to be really bad that we won't get that explicitly until the end. But I think that most of this conversation is actually about Augustus himself. It's about his life and his position. This last bit is a ton of fun, especially for me, just an absolute blast, because Gaiman is essentially giving us a colorful summary of Augustus's own autobiography, with also then some salacious details that we get from later writers like uh, Spatonius, uh, also a little bit Cassius Dio and uh, Tacitus, just to name a few. And look, I will talk about this all day. I mean, it's literally my day job, and I do love my day job and love this material. But rather than do that, I thought it would probably be best for our listeners, Brent, if I just pitch this to you, see if there's anything in this part of the conversation that strikes you as uh, interesting or anything that you think needs some clarification or some elucidation, really just anything that you want to pause here and talk about before we get to Julius Caesar and also Dream. First off, I want to note, you mentioned that there's a lot of sprinkling in from a number of sources, particularly that Neil uh, pulled from here specifically in Sandman Companion um, by High Bender. In an interview, he notes that he largely drew from Suetonius's The Lives of the Twelve Caesars, um, the uh, translation by Gardner specifically. Um, and that talks about uh, Lycius and a number of events in Caesar's life. Also, I want to note 
as you said, it, it's not clear exactly what the year is in the comic, but uh, Leslie Klinger in the Annotated Sandman figures it is at about 7 CE based on uh, some notes in Neil Gaiman's script uh, with if Livia is in her 50s, um, uh, Augustus's wife. So um, that's about when we're looking. Um, one thing that struck me in the comic, and it's something that I had not had a lot of exposure to before, was this idea of how Augustus felt and treated, you know, the performing arts. It's something that I think a lot of us in kind of Western um, educational upbringing kind of fairly early get to deal with Greek plays and then, you know, things that follow thereon. Sometimes there's the jump immediately from Greek plays to Shakespeare. But, uh, it was interesting to me that Neil decided to pull out the discussion of Augustus's treatment of performers and limitations that he put on particularly those of noble birth from being able to be stage actors, as well as kind of some harsh sentencing that he may have been directly or indirectly involved with, with these actors. So I didn't know if you had any particular thoughts on, on that Glenn. I do. Yeah. There's, there's quite a bit to say about actors in antiquity or even really just actors in pre-modernity. Before I do that, though, let me just talk a little bit about Suetonius, this source that you've talked about. Uh, in English, yeah, this is often published as the Lives of the Twelve Caesars, though the, the number 12 doesn't actually appear in the, the Latin title, but that's the that's the title that Penguin Classics decided on like 100 years ago. So if you're going to read this in a classroom at a high school level or a college level, that's what you're going to call it. And this really is a collection of 12 biographies of Roman emperors or Roman rulers, really, I should say, from Julius Caesar to Domitian. And these are a lot of fun. I mean, this is just a great book to read. I've read it several times just like for fun. Also beautiful Latin. So this is something that at some point uh, you will, if you know, if you're working on Latin, trying to learn Latin at the classical level to work on it professionally, you're going to do some of this. Um, when I was doing my first graduate degree in the classics, uh, we did, you know, one of the biographical entries in Suetonius was just like an entire class that we did. Uh, super fun, just super beautiful. But part of what makes Suetonius so fun is that he loves the gossip. Uh, these biographies are not written chronologically. It doesn't start with the birth of this person and then tell us a narrative of their life up until their death. He tells the stories thematically. Uh, and so he'll divide things into you know, what their rule was like, what their personal habits were like, and then also all sorts of other things. And one of them is basically just tabloid level gossip. And so we get salacious and tawdry details about all of these uh, all of these figures. Many of them have entered our pop culture in terms of thinking about them as individual people, but also just entered our pop culture in the sense that something that you'll commonly find in, say, a comic book or a film, just as kind of an offhand comment about Roman emperors, is that they were all crazy or you know murderous. They were all real weirdos, maybe even had lead poisoning and that sort of thing. All of that really comes from Suetonius. It's from these biographies of the of these first twelve uh, Roman leaders, uh, Julius Caesar, and then the first eleven emperors. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, historians have done a lot of work to interrogate the you know accuracy, the veracity of the things that Suetonius says. Sometimes we can actually check these things against other sources, though a lot of times we cannot. And so this is a question that scholars have spilled a lot of ink on. And uh, it's brilliant to see Gaiman's own own take on this here, though he's, you know, just being really faithful to the text, I will say. And Leslie Klinger specifically notes that 
Suetonius's comment on the way Augustus treats performers is, quote, he went so far in restraining the light licentiousness of stage players that upon discovering that Stefanio, a performer of the highest class, had a married woman with her hair cropped and dressed in boys' clothes to wait upon him at table, he ordered him to be whipped through all the three theaters and then banished him. Hylas, an actor of pantomimes, upon a complaint against him by the praetor, uh, he commanded to be scourged in the court of his own house, which, however, was open to the public. And Pylades, he had uh, he not only banished from the city, but from Italy also for pointing with his finger at a spectator by whom he was hissed and turning the eyes of the audience upon him. And apparently Robert Graves translation notes that the finger pointing was uh, likely an obscene gesture. Um, so that's what uh, Leslie Klinger pulled out of uh, uh, Suetonius for that discussion in the annotated Sandman. But uh, I just thought it was interesting to think about um, particularly in the role of the story, Augustus's kind of view of stage actors and stage players um, and particularly the concern, maybe that those of kind of higher classes uh, being judged a little more harshly for participating in. And in fact, uh, perhaps there's discussion of a bar of, of none being allowed to participate, but like yes, at this point, perhaps. So I didn't know if there was any, I don't know if there's anything there that you had to say. Right. I, I'll, yeah, I'll try to do this as briefly as I can here, which means I'm going to grossly oversimplify and overgeneralize things. But probably the most important thing to say about acting in classical antiquity, by which I mean the civilizations of Greece and Rome, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, is that theater was a religious activity. We don't think of theater as a religious activity today, even when maybe it might be in some in some ways. For us, it's entertainment. And we also think of people who are acting in movies or film and television as people who are probably getting paid more than most of us are and doing well for themselves, even if those jobs are actually quite difficult. But in the ancient world, these plays, the performances of both drama and comedy were religious rituals. And this is something that, you know, when you're reading Sophocles or Euripides in, say, high school, you'll learn that maybe on the like one day of instructional material that you get in your English class before then you, you know, go about actually just reading the text. And so it's really easy to forget the context of that. But these plays in ancient Athens were performed as part of a, a multi-day religious festival. And the theaters that they were performed in were sacrosanct in some way. Now, that's all centuries before the story that we're talking about here. But the same thing was true in ancient Rome, in that theater was a religious activity. And all of the theaters were, in fact, technically temples. So if you wanted to build a theater because you're a wealthy person who likes plays and you want to be a patron of the arts, what it really meant is that you needed to build a temple that had an amphitheater behind it and to endow some money for the performance of plays as a type of religious ritual. Just as an aside, I will say also that gladiator games, uh, watching people kill animals, watching people kill each other, are also religious rituals uh, in, in ancient Rome, something else that we really just lose sight of in our pop culture. But at any rate, just thinking about plays, what that means is that if you are really a pious person and are concerned about uh, appeasing the gods, concerned about following their rules, following the wishes, performing the rituals in a really sacred and devout and pious way, then you're going to want to police the behavior of, of, 
of actors, of, of performers in these plays. And Augustus is such a person. And this is really what I meant when I just kind of offhandedly said that there was also a lot of cultural chaos at the end of the, the Roman Republic as well, which is that from a conservative, a cultural conservative point of view in, say, the late first century BC, Roman culture had gotten away from a lot of its traditional values, its traditional piety. And this is something that really mattered to Augustus. Uh, whether it mattered to him personally or this was merely a political stance is not something that we can really know, though it is something that scholars have argued about a lot. But Augustus instituted a lot of moral reforms, and a lot of them were actually about strengthening the family. Uh, strengthening the family really meaning making sure that Mem members of elite families, what we might call a type of nobility, were having enough babies. And there were real practical reasons why he wanted that to happen, uh, much of which was about the fact that for a century or so, there had been civil wars and assassinations and so on. Uh, Augustus was also wanting to use family networks, kinship networks, really as the backbone of this new state that he's creating here. And so this is something that really matters to him. A small part of this, I mean, small from his perspective, but not from Gaiman's perspective and maybe not necessarily from Suetonius's, was cleaning up the, the theater and also just public culture in Rome at all. This is really also maybe part of a broader move to make religion matter again. I think there's a sense here from Augustus that religion had become empty ritual, that people were not really attending religious rituals uh, from a point of piety, but were attending them as just kind of a, a matter of course, as a matter of cultural tradition. And Augustus wanted to restore that piety. So he spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy on making religion holy again in, in Rome, and cleaning up the theaters was a big part of that. And so one of the things that he does is forbid members of the elite from being actors, from performing on stage. So, you know, we today would think of being born into a wealthy, powerful family as a license to do whatever you want, right? If you don't actually have to work for a living, then you can you can do whatever you want. You could be a writer, you could be an actor and just do all those things for for fun or you can have other hobbies, right? You just, you know, it's an it's an opportunity for you to make your hobby your career or at least your your vocation. But Augustus didn't want that to be happening anymore because he thought that it was you know, improper for nobles to do that. And then this is the last thing I'll say, which is, why would he think that? And the reason he would think that is that up until really about a century ago, performers on a stage, uh, not musicians, but performers in like acting troops, circus performers, were regarded as the lowest of the low. There's a sense that actors and acting troops are all thieves in some way. Women are all going to be prostitutes in, in some way. I mean, this is you know just in the rhetoric of this. And that just in general, they're a bad lot and that people shouldn't be palling around with them. We, we need them to perform these plays, and we need to perform these plays because that's part of a religious ritual, but they're not actually uh, upright people. They're, they're criminals. They're they're criminals, they're sex workers, and so we shouldn't be hanging around them, and we need to have a lot of rules around them as well. And I say that this is an attitude that people have up until about 100 years ago. I mean, this is 
maybe less true in you know some parts of the journey from antiquity to 100 years ago, maybe the Elizabethan theater being one of those times. But even in the Victorian period, in the late 19th century, and even the early 20th century, the Edwardian period, this was a pretty common thing to be saying about actors. And in fact, I bring this up because this shows up in two other things that uh, we're recording on the network, things that Brandon and I are uh, are recording soon. One of them actually is a Seabury Quinn uh, horror story, a cult detective story from the uh, 1920s that has this as a part of it, uh, this idea that obviously all actresses are prostitutes in some way or another. Uh, and then it also shows up in a Sherlock Holmes uh, novel that I'm about to, to cover that uh, deals with theater. So yeah, these are attitudes that we have just lost, but that actually would have made sense to most people uh, who were born, you know, 100 years ago or more. In the context of just reading the comic, Augustus's efforts to build up and restore some amount of kind of cultural piousness was all in religious institutions that further reinforced the view of the Roman state kind of as he wanted it to preserve in terms of the order of things. These are not revolutionary religions that he's supporting. These are religions that are kind of entrenched in the value system um, to help kind of in some ways keep him in power, but also foster forth you know, an idealized conception of what Rome is and should be. And in the text, we are given that the character of Augustus here complains that all actors are liars. And I was thinking that there might be advantage if you were the first citizen or the commander or emperor, if you will, of Rome or of anywhere to having the sons and daughters of noble families not be in the habit of lying. Right. Well, something we should keep in mind here as well is that, you know, we have a word in English that we use quite a bit, I, I suppose. The word is hypocrite, by which, and we use that word to mean someone who uh, says one thing but does another, right? That's really what we use that word to mean. That word is just the Greek word for actor. Right. So uh, when we talk about hypocrites, uh, especially when we get them actually in Christianity in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, if you're reading an English translation that uses the word hypocrite, you should probably stop using that English translation because it uh, probably actually is just a passage talking about actors and not actually uh, the way that we use hypocrites. That's not going to be a blanketly true statement. That again is an oversimplification. But, you know, we lose track of that, that even just there in the etymology of our word hypocrite, we can see the way in which actors were regarded as not good, regarded as salacious in some way because of the job that they do is to pretend to be something that they're not and to say things that are not true, that they're they're deceivers, right? Uh, we can also bring Plato in here, and, and we won't spend too much more time on this, dear listener, I promise, but we can also bring Plato in here, right, who famously in his book, his work, The, the Republic, in imagining an ideal society, an ideal political system rails against actors and poets as being deceivers and liars, as as people who write about things that are made up and how that's not good for people. And this is an attitude, certainly, that you and I, Brent, and our listeners do not share, because here we are talking about made-up stories, something we spent a ton of time doing, thinking they really, really matter to us. Certainly, Neil Gaiman, we can bring into that, you know, into that club as well. And so it's an attitude that just seems really strange to us, and it's one that we just really can't even empathize with. We can't really envision feeling that way. But lots and lots of people 
have, especially here in antiquity. And Augustus is is one of these people for sure. Uh, at least at least publicly, at least in his his political persona, he is one of those people. Part of why um, we kind of approach this in a different way, and something else that I was thinking about in this context was from the kind of modern Western liberal tradition of things. We have a very specific idea about the important role of the individual, you know, relative to the state. In the in the context of the story, I'm wondering if part of the idea that Augustus has is he he wants to see performances as, as you as you noted the important role that they have played and can play in terms of kind of the the performance of even religious ritual and you know, art as expression of religion. But if it's in a way that is very codified and you're performing the play as it was written and therefore as, you know, as Augustus, he is okay with it being versus if and we don't get this in the text, but we, there's a discussion about him, you know, burning other things and destroying other books. If there is, you don't want someone let's say, uh, doing improv on stage because they might trip upon something you don't want them to trip upon. It's just a matter of like, you know, I'm reminded of the, the, the court jester and it's just like, they're allowed to make fun of the ruler to a point. And then once they have crossed that point, it might become dangerous. And you might point out that the emperor in fact has no clothes and is just a guy who's put soap and vinegar on himself, right? And it is helpful for you to have the performance of art and to tell fictions that are useful, but you don't want to tell fictions that are going to point out perhaps the fact that the useful fictions are themselves fictions and therefore fallible. Yeah, you're depicting something that's a little more Soviet Union. Uh, you're thinking maybe a little more like, uh, you know, Shostakovich and uh, uh, filmmakers and so on here. You know, this is not a police state in any kind of 20th century sense here, but there is some of that here. And in fact, People who want to institute police states famously have gone back to look at what Augustus has done in establishing a new regime, though, of course, there are all sorts of other other blueprints and and other models now. And I like something that you, you've hit on here, Brent, which I hadn't thought about, but is that Gaiman has situated the first two stories in this Distant Mirrors arc and moments of important political transition, uh, revolutionary moments, we might say, though that's not maybe technically applicable here, but moments of great transition in terms of politics and culture. Of course, these are moments in history that are absolutely fascinating. These moments of great change really draw our interest, capture our attention, and so on. Uh, They're also great places to set stories. Well, let's go talk about Julius Caesar now. And we should say upfront that this is where both the the sexual assault and the child sexual abuse are going to come up. I mean, I say both, but they're it's the same act here. But this is the point where we're going to talk about this. And the deal is that when Augustus was 16, he joined the headquarters of his uncle, Julius Caesar, who was the ruler of Rome. And while Augustus is traveling with the army, a 16-year-old Augustus, Julius Caesar rapes him. Not once. In fact, this is something that's happening routinely. And Caesar explicitly tells Augustus that if he 
allows this to happen, if he doesn't resist, if he doesn't complain, then he will become Caesar's heir. And this, of course, is what these opening panels were about. It's Augustus lying in his bed, wondering if tonight is going to be one of those nights. In the present of the story, this is something that still haunts Augustus. It gives him nightmares every night. Augustus even has a professional storyteller on hand to help him fall back to sleep when he inevitably wakes up screaming from these nightmares. Now, these nightmares, obviously, right, this is how we're going to get dream into this story. I know I said at the top that we wouldn't dwell on this element of the story, but Brent, now that we're here, I also don't want us to gloss over it. The way the comic is set up, you are aware that there is a young boy. You quickly figure out it's Augustus and something very terrifying has happens to him at night. And, and we gradually have this unfold, but it is, it does bring in some elements of horror back into the Sandman comic, right? We, we've talked about kind of the extent to which oftentimes Sandman has drifted from kind of its horror origins, but in many ways, because of the sexual assault that occurs of Augustus at such a young age by his grand uncle, um, we have here kind of literally and viscerally horror. And it is the thing that keeps him up at night. It causes him to, you know, wake screaming and terrified and scared. Um, and so he's got his mobile podcast unit, uh, AKA a storyteller on call, but we have, very horrific things portrayed um, in the comic, um, and it juxtaposes between these dark panels of, you know, showing that it's in the past and also things occurring at night versus the very bright, direct, straight line white that Brian Talbot and, and the other artists are giving us for what is occurring with Lycius and Augustus visiting the market. Yes, and it's hard for us to say because this is several times for us through this story of the Sandman. But I felt on reading the issue for the first time to prepare for this episode that it's clear what's going on even before we get the revelation at the at the end that we're able to infer more or less what's happening here that uh, some of the that the depiction of Julius Caesar when what's being narrated or shown to us in flashback is Augustus's first meeting with Julius Caesar we can see that Julius Caesar is not looking at Augustus uh, in a place of of love and uh, fondness and affection and caring for his well-being and so on. He looks positively terrifying and also, frankly, just a little creepy. And so we are able to infer that this is happening before the revelation, which I think softens the blow a little bit. One of the places as well where this differs from Calliope is that the rapist in this story is not a main character of the story. He's someone who exists here in the flashback, and the flashback exists to really to motivate the character of Augustus, to motivate what it is that's the, the story that Gaiman is actually telling. And in fact, let's just go get to the heart of the story now. And it is essentially a revenge story. And here again, Brent, I'm going to divide this up. So let's do the plot stuff first, and then we can talk separately about the world building. Though, of course, just to be clear to our listeners, that's all woven together in the story. So Dream 
visits Augustus and gives him some advice. And he says that he is doing this at the behest of Terminus, who is the Roman god of boundary markers, and therefore the god of boundaries more generally as kind of an abstract concept. Terminus knows that Augustus is plotting revenge on Caesar. I mean, Caesar is dead, I should be clear, but Caesar is also a god. And in this story, the Roman gods are very, very real, and that includes Julius Caesar. So Augustus wants to harm Julius Caesar, but he has to do it without Caesar finding out. So how do you hide something from a god? And that is what Dream is here to explain. It's the advice that he's here to give. So Dream tells Augustus that the way Roman divinities work is that they pay special attention to office holders, not really to individual persons, but to people who hold important office. So the way to escape their gaze is just to stop being emperor for a day. And so that is what Augustus is doing. He's pretending to be a beggar so that he can allow himself to plan his revenge without his thoughts being observed by the gods, and specifically being observed by the deified Julius Caesar. And he does this for years until the plan is brought to fruition, though here we're really just seeing the first time he's doing this. But we know that he does this for years until he's able to really carry out his plan. And What the plan is, what's going on here, right, is that Augustus has read all the prophecies that there are. And I think we're meant to understand that these prophecies are are true. They're right. And so he knows that there are two possible futures for Rome. In one of them, the empire never dies and, in fact, ends up ruling the entire globe and does so for 10,000 years. And that is the dream of Caesar. That's what Julius Caesar was trying to get started. In the other possible future, the Roman Empire will be, and here I'm quoting, eaten from outside by barbarians and inside by strange gods in a few hundred years, which, uh, you know, that's actually what came to pass, or at least, you know, that's what came to pass the way that Edward Gibbon describes it. Now, as the Roman emperor, Augustus obviously should want that first future, and he knows how to obtain it because the prophecies are really clear about what he needs to do. As long as Roman armies never stop campaigning and conquering, the empire will survive. It will exist. But the thing is, Augustus doesn't want Caesar to live forever as a god. He doesn't want Caesar's dream to become reality. He wants to make Caesar pay for what he did to him. He wants to make Caesar pay for raping him, for abusing him when he was a child. And so Augustus's plan is to stop conquering so that the empire will eventually fall And he commands his successors to continue his anti-expansionist policy, and they do. Augustus also chooses an obviously incompetent successor. That's his adopted son, Tiberius. And Lycaeus writes that since Tiberius, the Roman emperors have been evil and foolish, and now all three. And so Caesar's dream is dead. That's the plot, though there is still a lot more to talk about, but but that's the plot. And it was true... um in Suetonius that, uh, according to Suetonius, that Augustus did, in fact, review and burn um, slash destroy, you know, the text that did not uh, agree with what he wanted to have proceed um, once he became the chief priest. Um, and so that bit is, you know, based in truth. Now, the idea of, which we've seen this before and talked about in Season of Mist, the idea that gods are real that they manifest and that they will continue to exist under varying levels of power based on having worshipers is something that we've already seen. So 
I think what we have play out here, Glenn, is it's correct to say that Augustus is attempting his revenge on Caesar, but also kind of in the continuation of the horror theme, he himself, Augustus, is already in the process while he's still alive in this comic. He knows there already are efforts underway to begin deifying him. He potentially, after his death, will continue in some capacity to remain in existence, as will and as does the god that is Julius Caesar. You need to actually eliminate the idea that Roman figures like Julius Caesar and Augustus actually can continue to exist. Otherwise, uh, in some ways, Augustus will always forever be trapped in that point of abuse with his uncle. Right. It's a form of he is he, he's both trying to deal with his post-traumatic stress from being sexually assaulted numerous times by his granduncle, plus the fear that he will have to again spend time and his granduncle still in some ways exists as he will continue to exist unless there is no Rome and therefore no ability for there to continue to kind of pump the energy into the deification and continued existence of them as mythological figures um, is kind of what I think is also going on here. Yeah, it's interesting that 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 should be the plan, but I don't think it actually is because there certainly would be some ways for Augustus to do that. And I, I guess here where we've just spent quite a bit of time talking about Augustus's moral legislation, his moral reforms, mostly in, in thinking about cleaning up the theater scene a little bit, but doubling down on reinforcing the piety of the Roman people is maybe not the way to carry out this plan of getting people to not actually regard Caesar as a, a deity in order to get your revenge on him. But of course, Gaiman can't have Augustus do that because that's not at all what Augustus did in reality, where here... Augustus does, as you say, stop expansion, although not nearly to the extent that Gaiman portrays it here. Something that I thought was interesting about Klinger's dating of this, Brent, when you gave us the date earlier of, of the, year, the year seven, is that that seemed kind of early to me because I was assuming that this must be happening after the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, which is an important part of this not expanding anymore. This is uh, a battle that happened, well, it happened in the Teutoburg Forest, which is in, in Germany, just on the other side of the, the Rhine. This is a battle between a segment of the Roman army and some uh, Germanic peoples here who are actually allied with the the Roman state. Uh, They ambush the Roman military here and just slaughter the, I think, and and just slaughter three legions that are just totally lost. So it's a pretty big percentage of the entire Roman army. And this was a big deal, right? Losing this much manpower, this much, this, this many soldiers was simply not something that Augustus could replace. And so this is really part of why he stopped expanding. And in fact, in contradiction to what Gaiman presents here, there are accounts of one of the last things that Augustus says, uh, like on his deathbed, he cries out, you know, uh, Varus, that's the name of the general, Varus, give me back my legions, right? The, The idea being that this is actually something that really vexed Augustus, that because these legions had been slaughtered, he couldn't carry out some of the plans that he actually had for expansion. And I know I started that thought by saying, well, that must have already happened. But actually, no, now that I think about it, it makes way more sense for Augustus to hatch this plan first and then use 
the defeat in battle as a plausible reason to stop expanding or or possibly even something more sinister. Possibly Augustus is actually behind the ambush uh, in some way, which is actually a really horrible thing to do, but uh, but might might be what Gaiman is thinking about here. Yeah. And that I think is my headcanon is that he, if not behind the ambush, certainly make sure that there are less resource than they could otherwise be so that there's that final moment of sting, which then provides the kind of the face that he's providing um, to, you know, during the normal, not once a year face um, to justify his no more expansion policy. And when we talk about, I mean, as you mentioned, there's kind of the, the conflict between my view of if he wants Rome to be torn down and, and wants to eliminate it, eliminate the kind of deification and therefore not have himself trapped forever with his tormentor, um, then a lot of the actions he's taken seem to run contrary to that. But to me, that's what's playing out here is that, in fact, what we have is Augustus is himself an actor 364 days a year. 364 days a year, he has to do everything he can as far as the Roman gods are concerned with continuing the advance of Rome. And he has to be very subtle if he does anything during those days that would actually run contrary to it, destroying texts that perhaps show what could happen if you do something wrong or right or one way of him hiding his actions. But it's also that I think the Augustus we get sitting in the marketplace one day a year is the true Augustus. And he's more merely putting on a mask and performing as an actor the rest of the year. And so therefore there are things he has to do that are to the advantage of what Caesar would have wanted slash does want. And it's only one day a year that he is free from Caesar's watchful gaze and to be able to act freely. And in that way, again, this is a horror story where he is a captor of his abuser all but one day a year. So what can he do that one day before knowing that he'll be caught again by nightfall, essentially, right? To make sure that in the long run, he's able to get some amount of revenge and perhaps get freedom, even if that freedom is you know, in his conception, perhaps of what oblivion would be. And again, some of this is there's not necessarily, we, we get discussion about deification. We know from prior comics that there are gods in the form of, you know, Zeus and we assume Jupiter and stuff. We don't see any evidence that there is that Julius Caesar at any point necessarily still is a being walking around talking and eating things or whatever, hanging out in Mount Olympus. But Still, it's me reading into the text a little bit there, but that's the way my head canon is working all these things together is that essentially there are two different Augustuses. One has to be doing the slightly better thing than the other one does, but the other one has to do what is expected of him um, when he is under the watch of the, the gods. I think you are right to emphasize the long run here, right? Because it's not like Augustus is trying to not have to encounter Julius Caesar ever again when he's when he becomes a god. He knows he's going to become a god. He knows that that means he's going to encounter Julius Caesar again. But still, the plan that he's hatching here is something he knows that is going to take centuries to 
to to work out. I mean, he says that literally. He knows that it's going to be centuries. Something else to to point out here about what Gaiman is doing or or, or fudging, maybe I should say, before we uh, move on and talk about the world building, is that this is also not the greatest extent of the Roman Empire. It's not like Augustus's reign is the biggest that the Roman Empire ever is, and then it goes into some period of stasis and then collapses. It's actually a century and some change, actually really almost two centuries from this point that the Roman Empire is at its greatest territorial extent during not Augustus's lifetime, but during Lycius's lifetime, the Roman Empire is going to conquer Britain, uh, which is to say England, what today is England and Wales, and also parts of of Scotland. Actually, the parts of Scotland, I think, happens maybe a a decade or so after Lycius is going to die. But anyway, the point is, that's coming soon, getting started uh, under the reign of of Claudius. But then we're also going to conquer Romania. We're going to conquer parts of Iraq. I'm not sure why I'm using we here as if like this is, you know, something I'm a part of. But uh, yeah, there's going to still be great territorial expansion of the Roman state by Augustus's successors, some of them immediate and then some of that uh, much further into the into the future. And so there's a little bit of fudging going on here. But of course we also can just accept that Augustus is aware of that, but he knows that nonetheless forbidding expansion right now is a part of the process of slowing down if not entirely halting the Roman conquest of, you know, expanding a- across the world. Well, before we go talk about the world building, Brent, we have some more news that we should let our listeners know. We said last time that we had quite a bit of news. So today we'll have one more item. And it is to say that the forum that we have been using on our website since we founded the network in 2017 is gone. We have had to get rid of it. Uh, It has succumbed to forum span. It also always was a very clunky interface. And so what we have done is switch to using a Discord server, and this is something that we allowed our Patreon supporters to choose what they wanted to replace the forum. They selected a Discord server, and that Discord server is Patreon exclusive. So if you want to, so if you're with us on Patreon, you've already got access to it, and if you join us on Patreon, you will get access to that. And this is actually going to matter specifically to this show. There's a number of channels, one for each show that we have on the Discord server, and for the Neil Gaiman channel, um, that's one where uh, we can chat about any number of things. But as we go, um, and as these episodes are released, I'll be posting images of the panels that Glenn and I select. And you can see what it is, and also you can comment and even feel free to upload what panels you would have picked uh, instead of us. And and it'll be interesting to see what everyone's thoughts are and kind of what your favorite panels are, not just what Glenn and my favorite panels are. So really look forward to uh, you joining us if you're joining us as a patron over on the Discord. I've really enjoyed the um, discussions that we've had over there with patrons so far. Um, I'm on there as a host, but also as a patron. So um, please join me. I think it would be pretty awesome, actually, if we uh, ever got an issue where people were sharing their their favorite panels as well, and we got every single panel in the <laughs> issue as as some listeners' favorite. I think if that happens, that's uh, that's Sandman Bingo. We'll call that, and uh, we'll do something to celebrate that event. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go talk about the world building material here, and uh, we're going to zoom in on this. We're going to do this rather slowly. Well, the first thing to talk about here, I think, is just the existence of these Roman gods and how that works. And as you've been pointing out, Brent, we have already met loads of other gods in the Sandman at this point. So we've got, you know, some sense of how this works. But here, Dream explicitly says, 
all gods begin in my realm. He also then says, when they are old, they return to my world to die. And presumably, this beginning in his realm, beginning in the dreaming, is because they grow out of our own imaginations, which, of course, we know is the purview of dream, that that's part of the dreaming. But in terms of thinking about the cosmology of the Sandman, the the deities and religions that we have seen in this story, this statement is not true of the Abrahamic God, though, right? Yeah, it's not true of whatever essentially is the Abrahamic God. I mean, I think that there might be some headcanon wiggle room here, particularly if you're not a subscriber to Abrahamic religion, um, <laughs> that it is just that people are understanding some kind of God as being the Abrahamic God. But um, we saw Eden seasons of mist, particularly um, and even, but even earlier than that in Preludes and Nocturnes, where there's some discussion of, you know, the force that is behind the creation of the, the beings of the universe. And then the one who then originally is the one who can own hell because they essentially are the ones who allowed it to be created the one who created Lucifer and the other angels. And that that is something that exists separate and above all of the more, I'm going to use the word petty kind of petty gods of other mythologies that we have at play in say seasons of mist where, you know, we have everyone show up, including, you know, folks from fairy who are not gods who have envoys from fairy. Um, but by the end of it, you know, Morpheus, you know, gets a holy message that is not even delivered to him firsthand. It is delivered to him through the voice of an angel. And there is no way that dream is going to a, it's a useful way out of the box for dream on his indecisiveness. But it also represents the idea that there is some kind of, and for lack of a better kind of fixture at this point, Abrahamic God that is uh, above everything else and sits kind of above the endless. So we kind of have cosmo cosmologically that thing that sits kind of uh, well above everything else. Then we have the endless and then we have the gods such as the Roman gods, the Greek gods, other myth mythological figures, Egyptian gods that are all sitting kind of a, a row beneath them. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I, I want to think a little bit more still about this idea of God's beginning in the dreaming, because I, I wonder if that then gives dreams some kind of power over them. Like, are they created in the same way, or at least in a similar way, as we have seen dream creating and uncreating nightmares? This is where we're kind of challenged in terms of what is the power of Sandman. This is where we kind of have the Superman problem, where it's just like, wait, he can jump taller than a building? Or, oh, wait, the buildings are taller now. So even if he's limited to building height, he can jump even taller than he could, you know, 50 years ago um, because the buildings are taller. He can jump over all of them in a single bound. My headcanon on this is that even if dreamers are the ones who are able to kind of through their subconscious and through dreaming interact with the stuff that is in the dreaming and help put ideas into place, then they might become kind of empowered separate from the dreaming. Cause we don't see that the gods continue to exist in the dreaming in season of mist. They specifically go and visit the dreaming. It is not their realm. They have separate realms from that, but it could be that the personification of them initially manifests in the dreams. The idea being that the dreaming has 
all of these ideas. It also has all of the ideas, never, you know, all the books never written right in the library. So that the library would have an exhausting, you know, bestiary with stats on all of the gods because they have manifested there, but they are not, they are not created the way the Corinthian was created. They are not created the way that Fiddler's Green in, in theory was created um, and was a manifestation of the realm. Yeah, I think that that's right. I don't, I don't think that Dream is creating these gods in the way that we see him creating nightmares, you know, right where he's, he's like on the beach sculpting out of Dream material. I don't think that's happening, right? These gods are created by us in the same way, as you're suggesting, that the books in the library are created. And you know, I think in a previous episode, I don't remember where this was, and I'm going to badly paraphrase this, Brent, but you hit on the idea of the dreaming more or less being the largest uh, massive multiplayer role-playing game <laughs> that there's ever been, that we're all creating it all the time, that it's not Dream's special uh, you know, garden, special property to uh, sculpt and manage in the way that he deems fit. Part of it might be that, but part of it is us. It's It's our creations, the creations of all living, or at least all sentient conscience, all sentient conscious beings, right? And so that's where these gods are coming from, right? And so I think that that's right, that he's not creating them. He probably doesn't have any power to uncreate them either, but they are still part of his domain in some way, just in the sense that the idea is that all of the cosmos is part of the domain of one of the endless, and dream, uh, imagination, is where these beings best fit, apparently. Though that might be something that we talk about in our you know final episode on the Sandman when we're all done. We might actually you know sit back and think about the conception of the endless and the different domains and and quibble maybe about where some of these things go. That would actually be a fun exercise. But I think that. Well, I guess this is a long-winded saying. Uh, I, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying. I think you're right. There's an additional wrinkle on all this, though, because um, it's also important to note that um, Dream, in lecturing Desire previously, we, we've heard him point out that even though they're endless, mortals, you and I, are not people to trifle with, and in fact, they are there in some ways to serve us. So there's a weird kind of power dynamic in which we are not we are at the bottom of the pyramid right but in some ways the whole top of the pyramid is actually bound to us and in that way kind of the dream of a thousand cats view of things if all of the dreamers are able to act in unison they could dream away at the very least the gods and who knows what they might be able to do to the endless um, is something else to you know possibly contemplate well, I think that's exactly what's happening here, right? Is that Dream isn't creating these gods. He doesn't have the power to uncreate them, but he also doesn't have the power to prevent them from being created, even though I think it's fair to say that they're being created out of some kind of Dream stuff, right? That they're create that they're they are originating in Dream's realm, that their matter is this dream matter in some way. But I think, yeah. Dream can't say, you know, I don't want the dream matter to be used in that way. I mean, have you thought this through? You want your chief god to use lightning bolts? I mean, that's dumb. That's dumb. I'm not going to let you do that. That's not a choice. Dream doesn't have that choice because he is our servant in that way, right? So, yeah, I think that's that's how I see this working. Yeah, and I think it even ripples out a little bit um, 
in terms of dream being able to aid or at least not prohibit gods from doing things. Um, Leslie Klinger in the annotated Sandman um, notes at one point in the comic, a discussion from Suetonius about Augustus being fully heedful of warnings that arise in dreams. At one point, Augustus was not feeling well and would normally have stayed in his tent, but he had a dream in which uh, Jupiter came to him and said, don't be in your tent. And so he left. And uh, meanwhile, the adversary's forces were able to gain access to his tent and uh, stabbed their swords into a collection of pillows that luckily were there instead of Augustus himself. So he was saved in the past. I don't know that that was dream saving him so much as it was Jupiter, but if it was through a dream that he was receiving this vision, it could be that Jupiter was like, Hey dream passing through, got to send a note or, Hey, would you mind manifesting a dream that says this, whether it's, you know, Morpheus had an active role there versus just a passive role, but allowing Jupiter to do that. Obviously there's a lot of ways that worshipers, you know, dreams are powerful things. And so there's lots of reasons why, if you or I were, you know, slightly higher on the pecking order than we were, and we were mythological beings, we would sure love to be able to com- use dreams as a method of communicating to those who are loyal um, to strengthen their faith. And for those who are, you know, considering a new faith, uh, then perhaps to also market to them, or at least those who are um, unsure, we would want to use dreams if possible to restore their faith or um, somehow, you know, buttress it in a way so that we would not lose them if it's a cyclical reaction of we need more followers to feed us more power kind of thing than uh, dreams as a conduit and therefore access to and through the dream realm being essential. Um, there's a lot of power there that dream has of sovereign of the realm, even if not sovereign of the gods. Yeah, I think you've just uh, pitched the next generation of podcast technology, Brent. So uh, I don't know. Hopefully, listeners can look forward to that 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 cyberpunk day uh, in generations to come. But yeah, I think you're transitioning here to something else that's been on my mind, which is what is then the relationship between dream and gods, and maybe also the dreaming and these gods, because critical to the plot here is that Terminus asks Dream for a favor and Dream grants it. And so to me, that suggests some kind of paternalism, like thinking of Dream as a kind of, uh, you know, mafia don or something like that. Or maybe alternatively here is it it's just that Dream and Terminus as individuals have some kind of personal relationship that maybe differs from the relationship that Dream has with, uh, just to use your example here, with with Jupiter or maybe with Apollo. Terminus is an interesting figure in this story in that we don't actually have Terminus represented in any particular way. In fact, there's almost no mention in Suetonius of Terminus. That's something that Neil decided to kind of put in for the sake of the story. It didn't really fit in with what he was doing. But I think there's kind of two levels in which we're dealing with things. We're dealing with Terminus of the capital T a God that exists the way that Jupiter exists in this universe, who Neil has decided or Neil, (laughs) that's fun slip who dream has decided to kind of grant the favor of, um, to help present this information to Augustus and terminus as the God of boundaries wants there to be boundaries. If you are the God of something, you want that thing to exist. And if Rome is able to kind of continue to grow and so it encompasses all of the world there's no longer boundaries. Now there are boundaries within, you know, 
particular plots of land and within, you know, various things, but still it's even better to have boundaries in which there's clearly the boundary between what is Rome and what is not Rome and having Augustus firmly say, you know, upon his death, like here is the boundaries of Rome. They are fixed. No one should try to go beyond them is a very powerful kind of religious expression for terminus to say, here are the lines and we should not cross them. So there's that level, but there's the other level, which is, Dream himself is bound by rules all the time. Do I think Dream is bound by the Roman god Terminus? No, but I think that Terminus might be the avatar or one manifestation of a larger set of rules, perhaps being provided by this Abrahamic type god, perhaps something else, that Dream is also beholden to, that there are rules, as we have seen throughout and from the beginning. I mean, with the the comic started with the idea that dream could be captured and that is because there are rules and dream follows those rules. And in that way, I don't know that dream is following, you know, capital T terminus rules so much as just there is a kind of platonic ideal of boundaries and rules. And that is something that the character of Morpheus consistently, as we have seen, adheres to almost to a fault as a number of his family members have pointed out. Well, speaking of family members, I, I want to point out here as well that, of course, we've had Calliope, another classical deity, one of the muses. We've had Calliope in this story. Also, Orpheus, who we now know is the son of Dream and Calliope. That's something that we're going to have to take up in a world-building sense at some point as well, like the biology of this, how this sort of thing works. But I just want to bring this up here to point out that we see an instance in which Dream is having a type of personal relationship with a god that does differ from the relationship that he has, the personal relationship that he has with other gods. And so it seems to me that the actual presence of Dream in Augustus's dream here, that he shows up personally to talk to Augustus, that's probably not something that's just in the rules. Right. I think maybe something that probably is in the rules or, you know, just the order of the universe, the way things work, is what you were talking about earlier, where Jupiter gets to use dreams to communicate with his people, with people who worship Jupiter. And that Terminus also then has that same ability here, a same right to make use of the dreaming in some way to, you know, get some time on the signal or something. Additionally, I I think that even if dream, you know, treats Terminus as he would any other God, you know, from a, from a static point. Right. But he may like Terminus and be more willing to curry favor, you know, for Terminus in this way, or help deliver the message is that as someone who believes a lot in rules and boundaries, dream and Terminus are on the same side. They're both wearing um, the same Jersey in that way. They're both like the same team, right? They both are big fans of, of approaching it in that way. So similar to the idea that if you Glenn as a Cubs fan are faced with a God who says, Hey, could I get help? And they're wearing a Cubs Jersey versus could I get help? And they're wearing a white Sox Jersey. You're gonna go with the Cubs Jersey person, which from my point of view is incorrect, but nonetheless is something that you would potentially do. So again, it's, it, I think that dream and terminus Dream is more likely to have positive relationships with Terminus more so than Jupiter or others because they both fundamentally have this kind of shared kind of value system, team the root for any number of ways to conceptualize that in the way that Dream 
at least while he was in a relationship with her, very much was on the same page of Calliope to the point that they could have a relationship. Um, and then things soured, but initially, you know, he did treat her in ways he did not interact with the other muses even. Right. Yeah. I think that that's my headcanon here. I think that dream and terminus are buddies in some way, dream and Jupiter, maybe not buddies, but they, you know, they've got the relationship, the, the professional relationship that they need to have. But I think dream and terminus, maybe they play chess together, you know, once a week, or maybe they're doing a podcast together, something like that. You know, they're buddies is my, my sense of this. And, uh, speaking of buddies, let's talk about Ravens dream has a raven with him when he visits Augustus. But of course, it isn't Matthew because it, you know, it can't be Matthew. Matthew doesn't actually exist yet. And this raven is Aristius. This is an ancient Greek poet. Uh, it's really two or three generations after Homer. We do not have any work left from him. And what we know about him actually comes mostly from Herodotus, who wrote centuries later than than he he lived. And so what we have about Aristius is that he died in bizarre circumstances in which no body was ever found. And then also we get that since he died, he has been the companion of Apollo, but has been in the form of a raven. And that's obviously the story that Gaiman is using here. And he even has Dream explain to Augustus that he is not Apollo, but because Apollo is the Greek and Roman god of a lot of the elements of Dream's domain— People make that mistake a lot, right? I get confused for Apollo a lot. But I also want to say that in the previous issue, we had another raven who is neither Matthew nor Aristius, but whom we did not talk about and probably should. Yeah. So, uh, Jessamy, uh, the raven we saw in the prior issue, uh, episode, um, briefly does make an appearance. Um, and uh, I will mention that Jessamy does make quite a bit of an appearance and is named uh, for those who watch the television show. Yes, Jessamy took on a much bigger role in the TV show than I remember Jessamy ever having in in the comics. But I do think this is not Jessamy's last appearance. Uh, that was the first appearance that we've we've had so far. But what we really can say here is that it's clear, it's definitive at this point that Dream likes to have ravens. That there's a long history of this, and it's not entirely clear. You know, on the page anyway, at this point, you know, how one goes about stopping to be Dreams Raven, how that how that works out. We may get some more on that in the future. But it's also just interesting here to see the types of people that Dream is interested in uh, turning into his Raven companions as well. Let's go talk about our favorite panels, the title, and uh, let's actually start by talking about the cover. That's how we always do this. And look, I'm just going to say up front, Brent... Um, I have no idea what this cover is. I will at least try to describe it for people who aren't looking at it or haven't seen it before. It's mostly black and white. There's one element of color. That's the same general scheme that we had with Thermidor as well. The black and white portion shows two mostly naked men hanging out, one seated, the other is standing. The seated one is near what might be a pillar with some vines on it. And then in between them is a rectangle with what I guess is a color painting in it, and the color is shades of blue. It shows the naked torso of a man in blue with hands touching his abdomen, hands that are a darker blue. I mean, this might be a Picasso here from his blue period, but really, I'm just saying here, Brent, I don't know what this is. What do you think is going on here? 
I think there's a number of things that could be going on here. I, I think we'll start with the easy part first, which is in the bottom of the field, there is a big kind of black line that represents probably the floor or rug or something. It's the landscape line here. And it clearly has a number of moons um, in different stats, uh, states of waxing and waning. Um, and I think that's because for this particular series, there are a lot of moons. We are talking about months. This is August is the, which we'll talk about in a minute, but, um, so we've got moons. I think that the moons are only there because this is months. I think the moons have nothing to do with anything else, except for the fact that there are a lot of them maybe represents the fact that this is a lot of time that is discussed. We have like, yes, writing about something that happened 50 years on, we have a discussion about kind of this very slow plan that Augustus has to kind of hatch over the course of his life. Um, in partially in response to something that happens when he is so young. Um, so I think that that's, what's going on there. The figures themselves, I think at a base level, maybe we're supposed to take it that this is Augustus and, uh, uh, Lycius, um, that the figure on the right is, uh, supposed to not just be seated, but shorter, um, and is appearing slightly more stout, um, relative than to Augustus. But it almost strikes me in some ways when I initially looked at it, I mean, not initially, cause I don't remember initially, but when I re looked at it upon this reading, Glenn, that perhaps that's Morpheus. And that almost looks like a more masculine form of despair. Um, and in some ways, those are the things that are dwelling within Augustus's mind and that Augustus perhaps is the, the kind of slightly frail figure in blue with the kind of the, the blackened memories of the assault that he experienced as a child, kind of forever kind of emblazoned against his backdrop. That's the center, but his mind is kind of swirling around a combination of dreams, but also despair continues and will continue to reside within him. So that's where I ended up where I'm not sure that that's at all what was intended. I have no notes from Dave McKeon's collection on the dust covers um, entitled the dust covers. Yeah, I like this answer quite a bit, actually. I think this completely explains what's happening on the cover. And I like the abstraction of your interpretation of this. Presumably, I have not looked ahead, but presumably the next issue, three Septembers in a January, is going to have a similar style of, of cover. And actually, at this point, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what these covers are going to be because we just haven't had covers that I think have been this puzzling to me before. I mean, some of them individually have been puzzling from time to time, but th these so far on the whole are like as a series are really, really puzzling to me and therefore also really intriguing to me. So I'm excited to, to see what these look like in the, the future installments of the Distant Mirrors story arc. But let's talk about the title here. Uh, we talked about last time how all the issues in this story arc have months in their titles, since this issue is about Augustus, for whom our month of August is named. Uh, this one's actually pretty easy. It is also actually August when the story is set. Yeah, it is. That is the month, and there's a discussion um, in there about how Augustus is certain that it will be renamed Tiberius or something in the future. Um, but, uh, the, the whole thing being, uh, no, no, we still call it August. We still name this after him. He is still with us. And in that way, both Rome has fallen, but also Rome endures. And I, I don't know, in, in the sake of this being a horror comic, maybe the horror remains. 
Right, because it's not just August that still exists, and therefore maybe Augustus as well. It's uh, July, and also therefore Julius. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's that's actually a real horror story, that Augustus's plan did come to fruition. As, hey, uh, uh, spoiler alert, the Roman Empire did fall apart <laughs> it's, you know, in the, the 5th century, as Augustus talks about here, than the rest of it uh, in uh, the later Middle Ages. But um, yeah, maybe Augustus didn't actually get what he wanted once the plan succeeded. I've never thought about that aspect of the story before, Brent. I think you've actually, here at the end of our episode on it, have really changed for me what the mood of this piece is. That's uh, that's brilliant. Well, it's time to talk about favorite panels here, Brent. Uh, what was yours? Uh, there were a lot to choose from, um, but the one I ended up going with was one of the ones where they were sitting in the market square um, on the steps. Um, and I do have to mention something that uh, Brian Talbot does in the art here that's just brilliant. He has throughout the comic the shadows changing depending on the position that the sky likely is in the day. So they start on the far left and eventually they end up in the far right. But I end up um, roughly about halfway through the comic. It's um, issue 14 of the original uh, comic where it's just the two of them sitting and um, – here we have five panels in a row of them sitting and talking. It's the middle panel where um, someone has stopped by and has uh, hiked up their toga. And uh, we f- uh, get confirmed two panels later that they are uh, urinating on the <laughs> side of the marble steps there. I really like kind of the humor of that, but also conveying how people passing by are considering this. I don't think anyone would actually urinate in front of slash next to Augustus if they knew who it was. Um, so it's kind of a commentary on how much people are kind of ignoring them. And they're literally being surrounded by gradually more and more kind of filth at the side of the steps as well. In fact, uh, here in the far right, we have a rat that makes its first appearance. That rat later will be um, crushed by Augustus. Um, but it makes its first appearance. And uh, one thing I learned from a uh, high bender, Sam and companion um, uh, in his conversations with Neil, he discovered that um, Neil knew that Brian Talbot is a big fan of rats. And so therefore there is a rat in every issue of Sandman that the two of them did. Neil made sure that somewhere in the script, there would be a rat. And so this is, Brian Talbot gets to draw a rat, which he likes having. Uh, Brian Talbot, among other great works, uh, created something called uh, Tale of One Bad Rat, um, which is a, a very good graphic novel that I recommend people check out. Um, but he's a fan of rats. But uh, here we have Augustus talking to Lycius, and he says, and is within their power, he's talking about common people, it is within their power to take back all power from me, but they will not. Humanity. They follow leaders, queens, or kings, chiefs, or emperors. We tell them what to do, and they do it. That's both true and also terrifying. Um, (laughs) So, uh, but the fact that he is saying this blunt thing, you can get the sense that the heat is beating down on them. There's a little bit of shadows that have crept their way back on the right-hand side. It is later in the day, um, but you also have them shrouded in filth. And again, the humor that someone is um, off to the side uh, peeing on the wall. Um, I just, I really liked it um, in terms of the idea it's being discussed, but the visual storytelling that is going on in the art is something that I just really enjoy here. 
I did not expect coming into our episode today, Brent, that you were going to want to talk about public urination as uh, your favorite element of the of the issue. But it is actually a pretty great gag on this page, I will say. And yeah, the, the text here too, this part of the conversation just really on this whole page about, well, really, this is one of the, the passages where Gaiman is getting into some political philosophy here. There's actually quite a bit of that in this issue. We probably could have done, in fact, we definitely could have done a lot more with that. This is actually another great reason to come over to the Discord server and talk with us further about this. I certainly have some thoughts about the way Gaiman is depicting Augustus's political philosophy and political program here. But yeah, it's just a brilliant passage. The art is really well done. I actually had not noticed the bit about the shadows while I was reading the issue, but I will say that Something that is a feature of this story is that they are just sitting outside. They talk about how hot it is. That's also something we got in Thermidor through line so far is people talking about how hot the summer is. But even without that text, even without that dialogue here, the art made me feel like this was a very hot summer day. So even though I hadn't consciously noticed that business of the shadows, I think I must have felt that, right? That it was just there as part of the presence of the art, part of the way that this is just working on my subconscious while I'm reading the story. And that's just brilliantly done. Uh, What was your favorite panel? Well, I picked the last page where Lycius is at his desk. And what we see here is Lycius from behind as he's sitting at the desk and he's got two oil lamps going. He's got a little statue of Augustus there as well. (laughs) He's also got a bottle of wine with a goblet. And this just appealed to me because it just really looked like a nice way to spend an evening. It looked a lot nicer than sitting on the steps of the temple in the hot sun. This just looked like a nice time. Yeah, no, he seems to have retired in a pleasant way. So Uh, Glenn, we spent quite a bit of time touching on um, some elements of studying Augustus, studying Rome, studying history, discussing mythology. As someone who uh, spends a lot of their time professionally thinking about these issues, um, is there anything in particular you'd recommend that that I or that listeners maybe consider taking a look at if we want to know more in a Starship Trooper sense? Yeah, and we should always want to know more in a Starship Trooper sense, for sure. Yeah, I have a few recommendations here. I'll actually only give one book recommendation and, and very narrowly focused on Augustus as this human and political figure here, because we will have more opportunities to talk about classical mythology in uh, issues to come. So that book recommendation is a fairly recent book in the last uh, last decade. Actually, that might not be true. Last 15 years or so, maybe I'll say, to cover my bases there, by Carl Galinsky, really fantastic scholar. He's uh, retired now, but actually still writing books. And the name of this book is Augustus, colon, Introduction to the Life of an Emperor. This is just exactly what it says on the box. It's a really excellent introduction to Augustus, to his life, but also to his political position, and also a good introduction to the scholarly debates about a lot of the things that we talked about here, uh, including how to understand the evidence, uh, how to understand Suetonius's account, how to think about that, and so on. So my recommendation there for something to read is by Carl Galinsky. I'll I'll put a link for that in the show notes, because I really hope people will uh, go check that out. I do also have some musical recommendations, some recommendations for music to to read to hear. The first of these is The Pines of Rome by Respighi. This is a tone poem from the 1920s or a symphonic poem from the 1920s. The movements are about different groves of pine trees in Rome. And if you live in Rome or have visited Rome, you know that these pine trees are a really big aspect of what it means to 
be in Rome. And so this music really functions as a kind of tour of the city. One of the movements, I will say, is about a Renaissance location, but the rest of it really is about ancient sites. So it can serve not just as a tour of Rome as it exists in our day or a hundred years ago, I guess, but it can really serve as a tour for Augustus's city that's a really nice accompaniment to the images that you're getting in this issue, where we also get something of a small tour of Augustus's city. The other recommendation here, the other musical recommendation I'll make is a little more on theme here rather than just about the location. And this is by a 16th century composer named Lassus. And the piece is called Prophetiae Sibilarum. Uh, that's Latin for prophecies of the Sibyls. These are motets. That's a type of unaccompanied singing. And the texts that they're singing are, in fact, the texts of ancient prophecies set as songs. And these types of prophecies, of course, appear explicitly in our story. This is what Augustus collects and then also destroys a lot of them so that people only have access to the bad prophecy that he's trying to, to bring about here. And all of the excerpts that are being sung here, sung in Latin, I should say, but they're all excerpts from texts that, from a certain point of view, seem to predict the advent of Christ or the you know coming of Christ. And so this is Christian sacred music, but I do think still that it is on theme for the issue because one of the things that's happening here is that Augustus knows that Christianity is going to be a part of how his plan is is carried out. And presumably it's these exact texts that he has had access to that have led him to believe that. And so my headcanon here is that, you know, this is a, a musical version of the text that Augustus is talking about here in the issue. Also, the music is just beautiful. So, you know, it's good to listen to at any point. Speaking of music, I will mention that there's a, a lyric reference, at least one that uh, Neil has slipped in here um, in the issue. At one point, everyone has gone inside and uh, Augustus asks where everyone is. And Lycius responds, they've gone indoors. It's midday. Only mad dogs, Britons and beggars stay out in this heat. And that's a reference to <laughs> mad dogs um, and Englishmen go out in the midday sun, which is a lyric from Noel Coward's uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, originally performed by Beatrice Lilly. So that's a fun little ditty if you want to look it up. Hopefully, we will get a televised adaptation of this issue, and then double, hopefully, we'll get that song when we do. It's maybe the the, the closing credit sequence or something like that. I would uh, I would absolutely love that. But I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. I hope that you will join us on Patreon for access to the Discord server, where among really potentially anything we could talk about, we can have a really great time sharing our favorite panels and discussing our favorite panels from issue to issue. We will be back next month with issue number 31, that is three Septembers and a January, which you can find in Fables and Reflections. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>